This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, good afternoon, folks. I'm glad that you all are here, uh, and I'm glad that you've come to this seminar on the Holy Spirit Promise. Um, just to give you a little bit of an idea of who I am, um, uh, in my, I was noticing in my, bio, my biography, I didn't put anything about there about what I'm doing now. I'm a pastor. Uh, I pastor the Hagerstown Church in Hagerstown, Maryland. I've been there about two and a half years, and uh, the Lord is... Uh, we are enjoying the Lord's blessings there. Um, my wife, Debbie, is here. We've been married almost 17 years, and so we are excited to be here. And uh, I also want to clarify a little bit of my biography. Uh, they edited it, and in editing, some things got uh, a, little, uh, a little off. I was not actually baptized when I was 17 years old. I was baptized when I was 21. I did not grow up Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic home. And uh, became a Seventh-day Adventist, met, uh, met the Lord, uh, encountered the message of the remnant when I was 20 years old, and I was baptized when I was, uh, when I was 21. And out of, uh, out of that, in a set of really miraculous circumstances, I was able to attend Andrews University and then uh, go into ministry. And we have been in ministry ever since, and we're glad to be here. And actually, there is... Uh, a little bit of an irony of us being at GYC this year. I, by no means am I an old man, but uh, I'm getting older. And this uh, year, uh, my wife and I, we talked. And, uh, and as we talked, uh, we said, you know, maybe we're kind of getting above that age. And so we had decided we were going to put our efforts and finances towards going to ASI. And, and we did go to ASI and literally a day after we made that decision. I received a phone call from Maria and asking me to speak at GYC. And so the Lord has uh, a bit of irony. And so we are appreciative to, uh, to be here and, uh, and be a part of the GYC movement. Uh, I want to let you know, you have the titles and sometimes titles don't help. So let me just tell you kind of where we're going uh, over the course of time. Uh, and how we're going to operate. Right now, we're in this seminar, this first session, we're going to cover the who. Who is the Holy Spirit? And actually, what we're going to really explore is what is the Holy Spirit promise? The, the next seminar, the next session, we'll talk about how to receive the Holy Spirit. And then the third session will be what are the results of the Holy Spirit? What happens when the Holy Spirit is received, the Holy Spirit is poured out? And I need to tell you, kind of in these first three sessions, I'll be going back and forth amongst those subjects. And the attempt will be is we're going to be building one subject upon another and arriving at the point then when in the fourth session we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and the end times. How does the Holy Spirit work in the end times, especially in the context of the great controversy theme and most specifically in Revelation chapter 13 and the showdown between God and Satan, between Christ and Satan. And then the last two sessions, we will talk about false manifestations of the Spirit. And most importantly in those last two sessions, not just because it's something to know what the false manifestations are, it's quite a different thing to know how to protect ourselves from those false manifestations. Now, this this seminar is actually going to be... Uh, very heavily expository. We're going to get into the text. We're going to unwind some Greek words, and it won't be too technical, but we want to really dig deep. And, and, and I need to tell you kind of my journey on this. Uh, not that I didn't believe in the Holy Spirit or anything like that, but understanding who the Holy Spirit is and how the whole, because we hear a lot in the Adventist church today about the outpouring of the latter rain. Well, what does that really mean? And what is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And so we're going to really explore that. And so each of our seminars is designed to build one upon the other. And, uh, and as we go through it, you, uh, they, they're going to build one upon the other. Now, you, of course, are welcome to go to other seminars. I'm not telling you to not go to other seminars. 
But what I am going to say is if you only come for part of the seminar, you'll only get part of the blessing. It's kind of like an apple. If you take one bite of an apple, you'll get some nourishment, but you won't get the full nourishment of eating that whole apple. And so I want to encourage you to uh, to kind of stay through. But like I said, you're free to go to other seminars. There are many other good seminars. Now, I am not going to be using slides. I have the whiteboard. It's a kind of a it's kind of a comfort thing. I did some teaching. I love working with young people. I taught at uh, Highland View Academy for two years while I was pastoring. And then when I was doing my master's work, I actually taught at Andrews University. So I love teaching and, 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 and writing on the whiteboard. I'm not going to be using slides. I do use slides in my evangelism, but the main reason we use slides in evangelism is to help people. We have people who are coming who don't know their Bibles well and we use those slides to help navigate through the scriptures. Uh, you are folks that have come to GYC, so I am certain that you can navigate your Bibles probably very well. And so if you have your Bible, you have something to take notes with, you are going to have all you need for this seminar. Now, I will, uh, not in this first hour, but maybe into the second and third hour, I will allot some time for questions. If you have any questions, by the way, after the seminar, I'm very happy to talk with any of you one-on-one. But if you have a question that you would like to have answered from up front, there's a little pad of paper here up on the corner. You're welcome to write that question down. Just fold it up on the paper and set it right next to there, and I'll, I'll pull those questions. And in the second and third hour, I will address some questions, um, and, uh, and we'll go from there. So with that, why don't we have a word of prayer? and get started with, uh, with our seminar, The Holy Spirit Promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here. We are grateful to be at GYC. We are grateful, Lord, that you have brought us here for such a time as this. And so now as we explore this topic, please open our eyes that we might truly see and truly understand more about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, coming to GYC is a very important, uh, it's a very important thing when you're coming to GYC, ASI, these types of meetings. Uh, I want to read a couple of quotes from Ellen White to help us. See, these meetings are not designed simply for us to be information gatherers. This is not just another file we want to put away in the cabinet. This is not just for us to come. And you may have come here for multiple reasons. Maybe you've gotten dragged here through a youth group situation. I don't know why you're here. Maybe your child dragged you here with them. But I want to read a a quote from the fifth testimony talking about how these meetings, as we prayerfully consider and as we pray about the things we're learning, the Lord can really work in our lives. This is in fifth testimony page 163 and 164. Notice what it says. While preparing for the meeting, each individual should closely and critically examine his or own, excuse me, his own heart before God. If there have been unpleasant feelings, discord or strife in families, it should be one of the first acts of preparation to confess these faults to one another and pray for one another. Humble yourselves before God and make an earnest effort effort to empty the soul temple of all rubbish, all envyings, all jealousies, all suspicions, all fault fightings. But let deep heart searching commence at home. Pray three times a day and like Jacob, be importunate. At home is the place to find Jesus. Then take him with you to the meeting. How precious will be the hours you spend there. But how can you expect to feel the presence of the Lord and see his power displayed when the individual work of preparation for the time is neglected? And so you may not have done that before you came to GYC, but even while you're going through these meetings, there is a personal preparation to prepare our heart to receive the full blessing that God has. And so each of the meetings at GYC is set up to help us to grow in our spiritual understanding, to help us grow spiritually, to come to the Lord and really experience His power. Listen, read again, for your soul's sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of others, work at home. Pray as you are not accustomed to pray. Let the heart break before God. Oh, how much is lost by neglecting this important work 
You may be pleased with the preaching. You may become animated and revived. But the converting, reforming power of God will not be felt in the heart. And the work will not be so deep, thorough, and lasting as it should be. Let pride be crucified, the soul be clad with the priceless robe of Christ's righteousness, and what a meeting will you enjoy. It will be to your soul even as the gate of heaven. And so that's what all of these meetings are about. These meetings are not simply about, and, and we do, we come and we see friends that we haven't seen in a long time, and we enjoy the kind of the reunion of almost a kind of a camp meeting experience here. But God's really looking to bless us. And so I want to encourage us. You know, I've been coming to GYC. This is actually the sixth GYC that I've been to. And uh, I know how it can be. It can kind of be routine. You know, I get up and I follow the schedule and I meander with the crowd and go wherever I need to go. And God is looking to do something special. And I'm hoping that this seminar will be something special that makes an impact on us. I know that it's made an impact uh, on me and, and really made a change in my life. And so I want to begin as we get into the Holy Spirit promise, a text, a, a text from the great controversy that actually uh, the, uh, this morning was read by Pastor Adam, and that was Great Controversy 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic time. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. And I believe it is essential as we study this, in order for us to understand what is going to happen in the last days, we need to understand what the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit how it happened, why it happened, and it is through that understanding that we will experience great things in our life. And so, let's begin by answering the fundamental question, what is the Holy Spirit promise? So if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll go right to the passage of the Holy Spirit promise. Remember, the book of Acts is essentially the second volume of Luke's writing. Luke wrote the book of Luke and tells the story of Jesus' life. It records the events of Jesus' life. Luke then writes the book of Acts as volume two, what happens in the church after Jesus leaves the earth. And we'll begin in verse one of Acts chapter one. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he has taken up, excuse me, until the day in which he was taken up, after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. It is here where Luke introduces the idea of the Holy Spirit. And, I, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is an idea, but it is, it is here where he's addressing the Holy Spirit. Right in that opening verse, he says that the Holy Spirit, he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments. Luke is trying to help us to understand that it is the Holy Spirit that led in the life of Jesus. Remember, how was Jesus conceived? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. How was Jesus led in his life? The Holy Spirit falls on him after he is baptized. The Spirit leads him. Where does it lead him? Into the wilderness. The Spirit leads through his life. And we'll see in our study in just a little bit. By what power was Jesus resurrected? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit was leading Jesus, and so it was through the presence of Jesus that the disciples and the multitude experienced the Spirit. But now Jesus, as he's leaving, and this will be what we study in the second session, now Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Comforter. Why? So now God's people can experience the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Do you understand the 
Early church, the early, excuse me, the early disciples, the disciples who were with Jesus, experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus. But now God's church will experience Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so it is there where we are. That, this is kind of the idea that Luke is expounding upon here. And now we move into verse 4 and we're getting right to the Holy Spirit promise. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. What is the promise you have heard from me? For truly, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, so now we're, we're at that moment, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, Jesus is teaching his disciples before he departs from the earth, and the disciples have now corrected all of their mistakes, of course, and what do they ask Jesus? In verse 6, Lord, will you at this time record, restore the kingdom of Israel? See, the disciples, how long had the disciples spent following Jesus? The disciples had spent three and a half years following Jesus. Jesus trying to teach them. Jesus taught them in John 14 through 16, all about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus walked with them on the road to Emmaus, expounded the scriptures, gave the greatest Bible study ever known to man. And now the disciples fully understand his mission. Absolutely not. The disciples come and they say, when will you restore the kingdom? See, the disciples are still stuck on earthly political rule. And we're going to see in just a moment that now Jesus, through the Holy Spirit promise, is going to transfer and is going to switch and attempt to switch their thinking from earthly thinking to heavenly thinking. The disciples are stuck on this idea. When will you restore Israel? Remember, remember Israel, and, and, and at that point in time in history, Israel was a general term used to describe the whole nation. But remember, the ten tribes of Israel had been scattered, and they were looking, and the concept of the Messiah that was common among the Jews at the time was that the Messiah would come and restore Israel back, that that the Messiah would restore these ten lost tribes, bring together the other two tribes, and Israel would rule the world. The disciples are asking, when are you going to deliver us from the Romans? And then Jesus now, and by the way, this is just to give us a little more detail. If you turn back to the book of Luke, we have the same discussion in a little bit more detail that is explained to us in Luke 24, first verses, verse 21. This is on the road to Emmaus. Notice, notice what the two on the road to Emmaus say to Jesus as they're walking with Jesus, but don't really know they're walking with Jesus. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. See, their minds are still stuck on earthly political issues. They're stuck on the strength and power of earthly ideas. And now Jesus is kind of trying to transform their mindset. But notice also again, in Luke 24, we get a little more detail of the discussion that Jesus has with the disciples in verses 44 to 49. See, Jesus is still trying to help them understand. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, excuse me, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father to you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem till you are endued with power from on high. 
See, the disciples are stuck in this mindset that it is about earthly might and earthly strength. But Jesus is not concerned with earthly might and earthly strength. And in fact, once the disciples, and we will talk about this in the second and the third sessions, once the disciples spend those days in the upper room, that is when God transforms their mind. And at Pentecost, Peter and the disciples begin to understand that the issue is not about earthly political power, but rather the establishment of God's kingdom. God is not concerned about conquering nations. God is concerned about conquering the realm of Satan and destroying his kingdom that the kingdom of Jesus might be set up. Let's go back to the book of Acts, and here's where we're going to, we'll get into some technical things here, but hopefully it'll be exciting. In verse 7, then Jesus, speaking, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Very interesting comment. Jesus says it's not, it's not for you to know times or seasons. He uses the two Greek words. He uses the first Greek word. It's not for you to know times. He uses the Greek word chronos. What English word do you think we get from chronos? Chronology. And then the second word he uses for seasons is the word kairos. What's he getting at? Jesus is telling them it's not for you to know the times. It's not for you to know the seasons. It is a reflection back On Matthew 24, when Jesus says, No man knows the day or the hour in which Jesus will return, only the Father in heaven. Even Jesus in his when he when he was on this earth, even Jesus at that time did not know when he would return. It is not for us to know when Jesus will return. It is that is not our concern. But Here in this text, it's not for us to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Remember, the question is, is when will God redeem Israel? It is not for us to know when God will establish his kingdom. Our job, and we will see this in just a moment, our job is to be centered on the reality that God is calling us to, number one, be personally prepared, number two, to prepare the earth for when the kingdom is established. Does that make sense to everybody? And so he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has, excuse me, put into his own authority. Jesus uses a word here that is quite an interesting word. It is the Greek word exousia. And it means to be an authority. Now, if you're reading from the King James there, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the King James says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put by his own power, or something to that effect. Isn't that what it says? Okay. The reason I'm addressing this word is because we're going to talk about power in just a moment, because in verse 8, it repeats a word, power. They are two different words. This is the word exousia. It literally means authority, to be an authority over a land, to 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 have to 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 rule over a nation see god has authority and god is in control of his kingdom and it is god's power it is god's authority that will establish his kingdom we need to remember as we talk about the holy spirit promise that the holy spirit is the third person of the godhead and let me let me just pause here for one brief moment and kind of interject something here This seminar is not designed to prove, so I'm making a major assumption, and that major assumption is that you believe in the Holy Spirit, and you believe that the Holy Spirit is is part of the Godhead, that, that the Holy Spirit, that He is the third person of the Godhead. Last year, at last year's GYC, you can listen on Audioverse, David Asherick addressed the whole issue of, because there is there are some in the Seventh-day Adventist church that are following down a road that the Holy Spirit is not a real person and that Jesus was a created being. This, this seminar is not designed to address that issue, so I'm making the assumption that we all believe what the Bible teaches, and that is that God is one, 
but God is three, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay? And so, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, and so it is in God's power to establish His kingdom. It is up to God when the kingdom will be established. And now in the next verse is where we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time today. In verse 8, notice. But you shall receive power. Now the power there, if you're reading from the King James, power there and power in verse 7 are two different words. The word power there is the word dunamis. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But you shall receive power. When will we receive power? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And why do we receive the power of the Holy Spirit? To do what? Now this is a little interactive. You you have your Bibles open. Why, Why do we receive power of the Holy Spirit? To be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Okay? So the Bible says we will receive power. If you're reading from the King James, in verse 7 it says, God's power. That is the Greek word exousia, which literally means authority. But here it says we will receive power, and it is the Greek word dunamis. Do you want me to do it in the English transliteration for you, or in the Greek? You read English. Wonderful. There's... Dunamis. Okay? It is from the it is from that Greek word that we get the English word dynamite. Okay? So this is the kind of power, but it is very interesting that this word in ancient Greek is is on the idea of and in the root word of being able. See, this power here is about ability, being able to to do something. See, God has authority, and now He is going to give us the ability. Does that make sense to everybody? So dunamis is about the ability, and we're going to see that the dunamis power, this power that God is giving, is going to be for three very important things. I'll spend a lot of time today talking about the first. But number one, it gives us power within. Power to change. Secondly, it gives us power to proclaim the gospel. And thirdly, it gives us power to lead others to God. See, the power, this dunamis power, was the distinguishing mark of the early church. The church was under the authority of God, and through God's authority, he gave them power. Dunamis power. But it's also very interesting on this choice of wording. The reason that this is so fascinating is that in Greek philosophy, dunamis was used to describe a cosmic principle. And for those of you into philosophy, you will understand that. But it was the idea in Greek thought that they would not have spoken of God's power. Why is that? Because this power, dunamis, was a cosmic principle, and over time, that cosmic principle became synonymous with God. So God wasn't a person, God was power. Does that make sense? And so now in this Greek, so now as Jesus is telling them that the disciples will receive power, he's contrasting that against Greek philosophy. You are not, that that God is not power, but God gives power. Does that make sense? Is that clear to everybody? God gives power. See, Greeks would have never talked about the power of God. But the Bible is now, Jesus, as he teaches about the Holy Spirit promise, the Holy Spirit is given for his church to receive power. To receive the power of the Holy Spirit which stands in contradistinction of this idea that there's this great cosmic principle of power. Why? Because God is more than just power. See, God was standing right there before the disciples. See, God was personal. God is 
personal. God is caring. God is love. And so now Jesus is trying to help them understand this is not the great Greek philosophy of power, but rather you are going to be given power by a very personal, loving God who cares for you and who's going to give you the ability to be witnesses. And I'm going to talk about what that means in just a moment. See, God wants to give us the power to be witnesses. God wants to give us the power to change so we have the ability to overcome. So you have to understand the disciples existed in a world, in a world in which there were many pagan philosophies all around them. And pagan philosophies and pagan gods centered around the issue that God was a power, a power in nature, God of the sun, God of fire, God of thunder, God of rain. But now the disciples are help, the, Jesus is trying to help the disciples to understand that God is not a power, but God is the authority who gives power to change. And you'll remember all throughout the history of Israel, all throughout the history of Israel, this is the great battle. The great battle is over the issue of God being not one of many gods, but God being the God, the only God that exists because he gives us the power to change. And so, God wants to give us the power to change. And let's look at this idea of power. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. How does God use this power in the life of the believer? Ephesians 3 Verse 20. It's a familiar verse. Notice what it says. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above that all that we ask or think according to what? According to the power that works in us. Now what power? Is this just some general power? What is the power that works in us? Let's look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. God promises that he's going to do abundantly more than we could ask or think. Philippians 3.10 says this, again, about power. That I may know him, and what? The power of what? His resurrection. Okay, how was Jesus, by what power then? Because we, the Bible talks about in Ephesians 3.20 that there's a power that works in us to do abundantly more than we could ask or think. And here Paul is commending us to know the power of his resurrection. That was Ephesians 3.20 and then Philippians 3.10. What is the power of the resurrection of Christ? 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. We don't have to guess. We don't have to surmise. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 tells us by what power... Jesus was resurrected. 1 Peter 3.18. What does it say? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by what? The Spirit. So by what power was Jesus resurrected? By the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is to work in us to transform us. And the Holy Spirit is dunamis, dynamite power working in us. And it is not that God is a power, but God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we, how do we receive, how do we receive the power of the Holy Spirit? See, often we think about the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in us or through us. But notice what the text going back to Acts Chapter 1, notice, notice what the text says. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit does what? Has come upon you. And I was looking at this, and there are many, because we just read a text that talks about the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. But here, the original Holy Spirit promise promises that it will fall 
upon us. And I started thinking about this and wrestling with this. But then I started thinking of the analogies that the, that the Bible itself uses to talk about the Holy Spirit. And two of the analogies is the early rain and the latter rain. And what does rain do when it falls? It falls on what? It falls on you or falls on the ground, right? Now, and I was also thinking about, and we need to understand this analogy. Has anybody here, is anybody here from the Midwest? Wow. Where are you? Are you from the East? Who's from the East? Let me see. Okay, okay. I'm from Maryland, so I'm glad you're here. Wonderful. Are the rest of you from the West? Okay, all right. You're from the Midwest. Where are you from in the Midwest? Minnesota, okay. Minnesota, the Midwest experienced a terrible, terrible drought this year, okay? And I, I, I'm into growing apples. I actually learned how to graft apple trees a couple of years ago. And the apple crop this year, many farms, many orchards were getting 5 or 10% of their apples. Why am I telling you this? Because there were several times in the midst of this drought where they had these huge, huge rains. But what happened? The ground was so dry that as the rain fell, it could not absorb it, okay? And so, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when it falls, sometimes, because can ground that is, that is, that is decimated by massive drought, can it eventually get wet? Yes, but it takes a lot of rain. And so you may have that brother, that sister, that uncle, or that aunt who you're praying for, and it just never seems like God is... Just remember, the Holy Spirit needs to be poured out in abundance on some people, and we always talk about some people out there. Sometimes the Holy Spirit needs to be poured out in abundance on me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and we even keep it at an arm's length when we say, on us, because I'm not part of us, on me. Why? Because my heart is so dry that it can't receive. And so the Holy Spirit coming upon us is this idea of rain coming and falling upon the ground. And as the ground receives that rain, what happens? Plants grow. Life happens. Blooming happens. Whatever it happens, trees blossom. Flowers grow. The rain becomes an agent for growth. Does that make sense to everybody? So the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, becomes an agent for growth. Are we all together? So now we come to the most important part of the original Holy, Holy Spirit promise. Okay? So we all, we're all together. In summary of the first 35, 40 minutes that we've been together, God has all authority... And he has the authority to give us the power of the Holy Spirit, which is an an enabling power to do what? What does it say here? To be what? Witnesses. I want us to look at this very carefully now. And I will tell you it was not until my... Because when they called me from GYC to do this presentation, I was a little surprised. Ask me to talk about Daniel 7, 8, or 9. I'm in my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm enjoying that. They asked me to talk about the Holy Spirit, and I said, this is really interesting. I'm not sure why they're asking me to talk about the Holy Spirit. I know why they asked me to talk about the Holy Spirit. So I'm glad you're all here, but I think they asked me to talk about the Holy Spirit for me because I was able to look at this in a new way and say, wow, this is fascinating. I want you to notice what the text does not say. The text does not say, I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit so you can be witnessing. Okay? Now, now. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to go run to Justin Kim and tell him, this guy, he's saying we shouldn't witness. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I want us to know and dig deep into this text. It says, so we might be witnesses. It is the Greek word, um, writing in Greek and English, martyrus. What English word do you think we get from that? Martyr. See, this Greek word is also translated several times as the word testimony. Okay? See, the Holy Spirit 
The Holy Spirit is to make us witnesses, martyrs. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Okay? This is not saying that the Holy Spirit is giving you power so you can be like John Huss and so on. Now, if you're called to be like John Huss, wonderful. Sometimes we, uh, sometimes we place ourselves in a position of becoming self-martyrs, if you know what I mean. Okay? Um, God is calling us to be witnesses or to have a testimony. What does this word literally mean in the Greek? It means to be one who remembers. One who remembers. One who has knowledge of something by recollection and who can thus tell us about it. One to come forward. One to bear witness to something. See this word martos. I spelled this wrong, I'm sorry, for those of you who are... Martus is used in ancient Greek in the legal sphere. It was a legal term, and it denoted one who can speak and does speak from a very key thing. They can and will speak of personal experience. See, a martus is someone who has seen. A martus is someone who has heard. A martus is possibly someone who has handled something. They are able to testify and bring a witness. They are able to bring proof. We're going to look at just a few texts because we're running out of time. The idea of God being a witness, and I'm going to move quite quickly, is not a New Testament concept. God has always called for a witness among His people. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. And I'm going to move quickly here because I want to read a couple of texts that are very important. Joshua 24, verse 22. Joshua 24, verse 22. What does it say? So Joshua said to the people, What? You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods from among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. There are several other texts we could look at in Isaiah where it gives the same idea. And what's the point? The point is this. We can be either one of two things in life. We can either be a witness against ourselves or we can be a witness for Jesus. As Christians, there there is not gray area. And I... Uh, I'm a very black and white person, but I believe the Bible is very black and white. When I say that, what do I mean? It is very clear. We are a witness of one of two things in this life. We are are a witness against ourselves. Because as a Christian, what have we done? We have said, I submit everything to Jesus. And so we are either a witness to the fact that we are living for Jesus, or we are a witness against ourselves by being kind of, shall we say, half in and half out. My proclamation does not match my lifestyle. Putting it in very simple, modern vernacular. The talk I talk does not match the walk in which I walk. Or our talk matches our walk. Does that make sense? The power of the Holy Spirit is for us to become a witness. A witness to what? A witness to the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. Why am I talking about this? Many, and don't get me wrong, because there is a second and a third, a second and third reason for the power of the Holy Spirit. We spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit giving us the power to witness. And what we mean about that is we mean that we witness by going out and distributing literature and knocking on doors and participating in outreach activities. But I believe primarily 
I won't even see primarily. Number one, in order for you to be an effective witness door to door, you must be an effective witness in who you are. Do you understand? See, the, the commandment, there's a commandment that says, don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Many times we want to apply that to saying God's name with some kind of foul word or using it frivolously. But taking the name of the Lord in vain is also in the context of, do I proclaim to be a Christian? Do I proclaim, and let's just be very real, do I proclaim to be an Adventist, but I do not live according to the principles of the last day remnant as outlined in the Bible? And so the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is given primarily why? First, that we might be personally changed. Remember, the counsel to the Laodicean church. See, a witness is someone who has seen. A witness is someone who has heard. What is the counsel to the Laodicean church? You, you were in church this morning. You need ISAV. Why? Why? Because we're blind and we cannot see. God wants us to see. Remember, remember, what is Hebrews chapter 12? And we're, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to go, we're going to talk about witnesses. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Notice. See, the Holy Spirit gives us power. The whole, I'm sorry, God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit that we might become witnesses, that we would become able to be able to testify for Jesus. Notice what Hebrews 12.2 now. 12.1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the cloud of witnesses? All of chapter 11. All of chapter 11. So if you haven't read Hebrews 11 lately, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning, read Hebrews 11. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness. Why? So that we might lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. And then what's the guide or the principle? Looking unto who? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our, excuse me, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. By the way, that is an Adventist message, if there is one, because it tells us the truth of where Jesus is now. But the power of the Holy Spirit, the original Holy Spirit promise, is God, by his own authority, giving the power of the Holy Spirit to the early church and onward so that they would be able to what? To change and to be a witness. And how do they, by the way, and we're going to get into this in the second and the third session, we're dealing with a group of people who just 30 days before that incident were fighting about who would be greatest. We're dealing with a group of people who in the upper room, as they sat with Jesus, looked around the room wondering, who's going to wash the feet? I'm not washing the feet. I'm not going to stoop myself that low. See, God had something that he needed to do in his church. Remember, we, they read it, um, I believe it was last night, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have, our hands have handled concerning the word of God. Second Peter chapter one, talking about this idea of witnessing or being a witness. Second Peter chapter one, notice what Peter says in second Peter one, 16 to 18. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were what? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from 
God the, from God the Father, honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then notice what it says, and we heard this voice. To be a witness is someone who has seen, who has heard, who has handled, and who has been changed by the life-giving power of Jesus. The disciples in Acts 4.20 says, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. See, the original Holy Spirit promise was intended to change the disciples. And we're going to talk about that in the second and third session. Because what do they do immediately afterwards? They go and pray. They go and pray. And the testimony of Acts is that when they were praying, they were of one accord. Fighting over who's greatest, of one accord. Something happened. Transformation happened to them. See, the power and witness go together. And then through our being changed, and by the way, we don't need to be perfect to then proclaim. See, because God is continually working on us, that then through His continually working on us, we have something to share. Have you ever had testimony time at your church before? I won't ask you to raise hands. But have you ever had in a church that, and I'm not making fun of anyone, but it happens, that one person or persons who always have a testimony, but that testimony is always from three or four or five years ago. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, the power, the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit is that we would be a witness both then and now. See, the Holy Spirit is continually working on us that through our life and through our testimony, we would change the world. Remember, Revelation 12, 11, in the showdown with the dragon, says that they overcame him. How did they overcome him? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their martas, their testimony. Being transformed by Jesus and then continually transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit, they had a testimony to share. They had a testimony. See, witness is through the power of the indwelling Christ, which is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Philippians 1.6, what does it say? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. See, the Holy Spirit, the original Holy Spirit promise, and, and by the way, we talk about the outpouring of the latter rain, and we'll get into this much in the third session and the fourth session. We talk about the outpouring of the latter rain to finish the work. I would contend the primary finishing of the work that needs to be done through the outpouring of the latter rain of the Holy Spirit is with me first. You understand? Now, I want to be very clear on something because sometimes we fall into this trap. We, we need to get perfect and spruced up so we can go and witness. It's not what I'm conveying. But what I am conveying is that the first and primary purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit promise is that God would finish or be finishing the work in you that you might truly have a witness to the world. Listen to these words from Prophets and Kings, page 233. To the heart that has become purified, all is changed. Transformation of character is the testimony to the world of an indwelling Christ. Did you hear that? Okay. Transformation of character is the testimony to the world of an indwelling Christ. The Spirit of God produces a new life in the soul, bringing the thoughts and desires into obedience to the will of Christ. And the inward man is renewed in the image of God. Weak and erring men 
and women show to the world that the redeeming power of grace can cause the faulty character to develop into symmetry and abundant faithfulness. See, Christ dwelling in us is the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be very, very clear. Remember, Zechariah 4.6. What does Zechariah 4.6 say? Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. And it's very interesting, by the way. The word might, and actually in the original it says, not by might, nor by great power. And it uses the word dunamis. What's the point? Folks, the call of the gospel, and too many times, as we speak about, and we're going to get to this, and I know I keep saying this, but we, in the third session, we're going to, second and third session, we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the issue of righteousness by faith. Too often, friends, we believe and practice a gospel of righteousness by stubbornness. You understand what I'm saying? The idea that we just need to dig our feet into the ground and we need to try harder. Listen, we need to cooperate. We need to cooperate. I believe it's Christ Object Lessons, page 333. It might be 331. When the will of God, when the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. I ask this question often in my congregation. Is there anything that God cannot do? And the typical answer is, nope, God can do everything. That is wrong. God cannot do everything. God cannot force an unwilling heart. And so the power of God working in us is transformation of character. And, and that is what we need. Notice, notice the, from, this is from the book Heavenly Places, page 347. I've got three minutes. There is an earnest work of preparation to be done by Seventh-day Adventists if they would stand firm in the trying experiences just before them. If they remain true to God in the confusion and temptation of the last days, they must seek the Lord in humility of heart for wisdom to resist the deceptions of the enemy. Ever are we to keep in mind the solemn thought of the Lord's soon return. And in view of this, to recognize the individual work to be done. What is that? Through the aid of the Holy Spirit, we are to resist natural inclinations and tendencies to wrong and weed out the life, excuse me, and weed out of the life every unchristlike element. Thus we shall prepare our hearts for the reception of God's blessing, which will impart to us grace and bring us into harmony with the faith of Jesus. For this work of preparation, great advantages have been granted to this people in light bestowed in messages of warning and instruction sent through the agency of the Spirit of God. Isn't that beautiful? See, you go look at pagan philosophies. The whole world of pagan philosophies and pagan gods is the idea that we need to appease God. God is not asking us to appease Him. God is saying, I'm going to give you everything to get to heaven. In fact, I'm going to give you the power to be changed so you're ready for citizenship in heaven. This is the beauty. This is the beauty of the power of the gospel. And I want to leave you with one last quote. One last quote. This is from Desire of Ages, page 671. Sin could be resisted and overcome only, what does it say? That doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. Only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy but in the fullness of divine power. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ is given his spirit as a divine excuse me Christ is given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. So we had the quote this morning from Christ object lessons. Christ is waiting for his character to be replicated in his church that will be done through the promise and power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful.
that you not only ask us to change, but you actually give us the power and the ability to change. Father, we want the Holy Spirit to be working in each of our lives. Please, Lord, pour out your Spirit in a special way on this group, on the GYC group, on the church worldwide, that we would truly be witnesses and that you would finish the work in us that we might finish the work on this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.